There will be no introduction music this morning. Broadcasting from the Hoovertown Road in French Creek, West Virginia. This podcast is coming from the old Hardman home place on a house that was built in 1866. That house, which my brothers and I grew up in, is now 156 years old this year. Hello, everyone. This is Jamie Lee. Some of you might not know this, but French Creek used to be called Snatchburg when it was part of Virginia. Today's story is about the men who hung Jeff Davis to a sour apple tree. It's been 60 years since that story has been told. The story comes from the descendants of the French Creek Pioneers meeting that was published in 1962. It is a well-established fact that a military commander, if provided with sufficient quantities of the right brand of liquor, can perform miracles on and off the field of battle. The most ardent prohibitionist will be forced to admit privately, not publicly, of course, that Ulysses S. Grant's overconsumption of spirits played a minor part in the subjugation of the enemy. But the theory held by Yankee historians that the surrender at Appomattox was brought about by a gradual wearing down process of the Confederate Army is more legend than fact. Just to set the record straight, the war was won and the britches licked off them rebels by a handful of men of French Creek, better known as Snatchburg, West Virginia. They were the fightingest breed of men who ever followed in the footsteps of Napoleon. Any one man in time could have made Lee holler uncle. When they marshaled their forces into one fighting body, the doom of the South was sealed. At the age of seven, I know, because they told me so, that had it not been for them, Abe Lincoln, not Jeff Davis, would have hung from a sour apple tree. The sons and grandsons of early settlers from New England, chiefly Massachusetts, their heritage was a deep-rooted love of freedom. Instead of having been born with silver spoons in their mouths, they were cradled with muzzle loaders in their hands. Hadn't their pappies and grandpappies licked hell out of the hell out of the redcoats at Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill? And hadn't they staged a repeat performance for the benefit of the British in the War of 1812? The gathering war clouds of the early 60s found them abolitionists of the William Lloyd Garrison stripe. If they limbered up their trigger fingers, they were itching for action and rearing to go. When Lincoln issued his call for volunteers, they responded quickly, too quickly, in fact. The first casualties occurred not at Sumter, or Philippi, but at Snatchburg, when in their eagerness to be the first to enlist, a half-dozen would-be heroes were trampled to death. Each family sent its quota. 
Fathers kiss their wives and broods goodbye, and husbands, knowing the horrors of war on the home front, marched away to do battle against less deadly foremen. Young men, encumbered by family responsibilities, pen poems to their sweethearts, vowing to bring back scalps. Although no Waterloos were fought in the immediate vicinity of Snatchburg, Witcher, Jenkinson, and Bowden staged repeated raids. Now and then they picked up a little booty, but the women and men, whose rheumatiz kept them out of the front lines, heralded them continually, and they usually gave up to disgust after one or two forays. So strong was the Union sentiment that a pounceal of the Sakesh cause was not conducive to longevity. When peace came in 1865, a few veterans who had not had their fill of fighting were detailed to help quell Indian uprising in the Plains states. The rest of the survivors limped back to their home community. Later, some were lured by the promise of free homesteads in Kansas and Nebraska, and they headed westward. Those who decided to stay put cleared land, built houses, and heeding the biblical injunction to multiply and replenish the earth, immediately set themselves to the task of reproduction of their kind, and a few magnificent performances were recorded as each man strove to set new and all-time records. They established schools, founding debate societies, ran for public offices of squire and constable, hunted and fished, and resumed semi-peaceful occupations. They had known that all too short days of glory, and in that glory, they were to bask the rest of their lives. The wonderful world of 1905 was peopled by brigade upon brigade of bedaddled officers. If by some mischance there had been one enlistee who had not attained its lieutenancy, his name had been blotted from memory, and he slept uneasily in the churchyard behind the Presbyterian Church on the hill. The generals, colonels, captains, and majors lived on. They would live forever. Catching ten-pounders in their bare hands, they had survived mortal wounds sustained in the field of battle. In peacetime, occupations, runaway teams, copperhead bites, and failing trees and left them unharmed, and they had proven themselves exempt from God's wrath by escaping unscratched from his vengeance in the form of bolts of lightning. Patriotism was graven upon their faces and oozed from their flapping beards. They whooped it up at Fourth of July celebrations and paraded upon the least provocation or no provocation at all. Three or four times a year they held bean suppers in the Son of Veterans Hall. Dick Young asked one trencherman, Morg Morrison, who was on his uh, sixth plate of beans. Do you like beans? Morgan replied, I allow us how I could eat beans from sunup to sundown and then go to bed on an empty belly. Grimacing and leaning heavily upon their walking sticks, 
They complained that their gunshot wounds were giving them fits, and they were always tarred, just plumb tarred all over. Abraham Lincoln was their patron saint, or was until that last tragic day of his life. It was his misfortune to meet his end in, of all places, the theater, a place of iniquity and sin. The brothers, less orthodox in their beliefs, believed that God would overlook this one fall from grace and would grant him a snowy robe and shiny crown. The fundamentalists had grave doubts as to his ultimate salvation. To a man, they voted the Republican ticket, and free silver was Satan's invention. God-fearing, they sat in the amen corner in the church and stood four square against the cardinal sins of card-playing, dancing, taking a bath more than once a year, sleeping with no socks on, the lusting after other men's wives. However, when a comely woman passed by, the fires of youth were rekindled in their loins. They snapped to attention and under the brims of their slouch hats, one could see the flames shooting from their eyes. A draft of store-bought liquor was good for lumbago. Not only rarely did one imbibe an overdose of old Sam Thompson. Once a year, maybe a veteran from some outlying community whose wife dogged him constantly and whose troubles were more than he could bear would go on a bender in the classic style. They found solace and comfort in their knowledge that just a few more days and the battle would be over, and they'd spend an, an eternity parading up and down the golden streets in new and lustrous uniforms of blue. They stake claim to the uh, wooden benches of Newt Linger's store and the chairs in Frank Page's barber shop. On rainy afternoons, when the weather wasn't fitting for plowing, they congregated around the pot-bellied Burnside's stove. The sawdust-filled wooden box cuspider was always within reach. Through two fingers, they spat Brown's mule and picnic twist tobacco juice a distance of 50 feet, and seldom did one fall to hit the bullseye. If the sun was too hot for hoeing corn, they moved to the porch and held court on spill cane chairs. In slouching postures, for they had mastered the finer techniques of slouching, crops were planted and harvested, and the weather was forecast six months in advance. Theological discussions ran the gamut from their belief in baptism by Sprinklin, not Duncan, to vivid description of Beulah land. Lowering their voices, lest Newt would overhear their remarks, they made short shrift of all Democrats. Through such divines as the reverends Poling, Carter, Ryder, and King, they had acquired first-hand knowledge of the lower regions, and William Jennings Bryan was consigned to the reddest and hotter corner of hell, and even that was too good for him. The problems confronting a then-peaceful world having been solved and shelled, somebody would say, Do you recollect that morning at Cedar Creek? That started the ball rolling. Deaf to the call of dinner bells, on and on they fought, and only encroaching darkness lured them, them home to bivouac for the night. Sam Smallridge had fought his last fight, and a good fight it had been, and he knew his soldiering days were over. 
Yet each morning he hobbled to the village for the mail, and each greeting, How are you doing, Mr. Smallridge? he replied, poorly, poorly, then adding, I ain't long for this world. Wallace Phillips, Wirt Phillips, George Phillips, Chap McCoy, Minor Lemons, Andy Buchanan, John Van Trump, Cass Brady, and Chauncey Wade sat on the sidelines and listened. They, too, had seen much action, but were reticent to relate their experiences. As a child, I looked upon them as minor heroes, for surely if they had slain a thousand men each, they would have related their experiences. They had been cheated. As I watched them listen to the yarns spun by others, I felt a sort of pity for them. Although Jim Young passed on about 1900, his name and deeds were legendary, and it was said that the stomp, stomp, stomp of his homemade boots still responded through the streets of Snatchburg. At the outbreak of hostilities, he was betrothed in Nebo Gillum, but duty called, and he forsook his beloved to test his mettle on many a bloody field and ever afterward to play host to cannonballs lodged in various parts of his body, notwithstanding the fact that the Rebs had marked him for certain death. He survived the massacre and returned to marry his sweetheart and to rear a large family. It should be remembered that Jim was a poet of no mean stature, and on the eve of his departure he composed a poem the first verse of which read as follows. And Debo, now you know that I must go and leave you, that I must go and fight the foe, but do not let this grieve you. Obi Martin, old and nearly blind, said he enjoyed every minute in battle, and he would like to lick the Rebs all over again. Homer Freeman, a man never known to mince words, said, Obi Martin, you're a damn liar. Canes were raised and ready for action. However, clearer minds and heads and calmer judgments prevailed, and after a few minutes of verbal sparring, the antagonist shook hands, but Obi repeated, I still say I enjoyed every dang minute of it. The most prized possession of Marshal Gould, a lieutenant in Company E, 3rd West Virginia Cavalry, was a sword he carried in battle in which he cleaned and polished daily. He also was a soldier of the cross and a founder of the Methodist Church in the little village that still bears his name. One prayer meeting night, a band of ruffians loitered outside the church singing ribald songs. Marsh went out to where they were sitting on a log and appealed to them to have respect for the Lord's house, if not for him. At first, they mocked him. Then as they saw his temper flare, they cursed him. That was enough. Although in his 80s, he shed his coat and said as he defied them, All right, 
you black guards. Come on, all of you. I've killed many a man who had better right to live than you have. They refused to take his dare and departed peacefully. Uncle Jimmy Roby, a mere wisp of a man, suffered from neurology. One day, seated on a high stool in Will Colrider's saddle shop, he leaped from the stool, let out a yell, and said, Good God, Will, did you see that hellish pain run up my back just now? In the days of his young manhood, he was afeard of nothing. While on duty in the Valley of Virginia, his company was taken by surprise, and all were killed except Uncle Jimmy. Still fighting as darkness fell, he took refuge behind an oak tree and never missed a shot. Flash from each shot reflected in the eyes of the Rebs and outlined his targets. One by one, he saw them fall. When daylight came and the firing ceased, he ventured from behind the fortress. There, stretched out in neat rows, were 100 dead rebels, which he said were the only good rebels. His stories were woven of the whole truth, and at the conclusion of each, he would say, And I swear to God, that's just exactly how it happened. In the greatest battle of the Civil War, the name and site of which, unfortunately, is unrecorded, a mini-ball embedded itself in Theodore Chauvarant's left forearm, necessitating amputation at the elbow. Winter and summer, he cut his shirt and coat sleeves off above the elbow. The stump, around which he wrapped the lines when teaming, was his badge of courage. All who saw could read that here was a man who had given all, given it all in order that his beloved Union might be preserved. Barrel-chested, with a beard, the flaming hue of a West Virginia sunset, he stood more than six feet tall and claimed to be able to lift a barrel of cider on his lap and drink from the bunch hole. In a booming voice, he guided his horses with G's and Ha's which prefixed with choice combinations of four-letter epithets. Nor were his curses reserved for his team of grays. One day, he called his son, Timmy. Timmy? Not hearing what his father request was said, What? The old man bellowed. Timmy, I say Timmy. Break your damn jaw to say, sir, to your father. Six days a week, he cracked his black snake whip and called down imperfections upon man and beast. On the seventh day, garbed in a frock coat, he expounded the scriptures in the Waterloo Church, and his prayers were heard from Alton to Snatchburg. Since Newt Linger would not tolerate his language in his store, where ladies were likely to be present, he usually held forth in the barber shop, clippers, put away, Barlow knives pocketed and Whitland seized when he mouthed the podium. Those present saw the war reenacted in all its savage glory. Pickett's charge was restaged. Bull Run and Antietam and Shiloh came to life as he recounted his endless deeds of valor. Sherman and Sheridan came to him for advice. He lit the torch that fired Atlanta. 
Lee and Jackson knelt in prayer and asked for divine guidance as the mighty Theodore mowed down row upon row of his foemen. For four long and bloody years, he never bathed, seldom slept or ate, and his rifle was always loaded and cocked. Bert Hamner was 16 years old when he falsified his age to enlist on March 25, 1864. He waged warfare the ensuing seven months as it hadn't been waged since Jericho fell. He was encamped at Winchester on the night of October 18th. It was rumored that Early was marshalling his forces a few miles away and an attack appeared to be in the making. Shortly before midnight, the enemy opened fire. As the early morning hours wore on, the cannonading increased in intensity, which he later said, kind of got on my nerves. At this point, he made the greatest decision of his life. I'd rather be live coward than a dead hero. Harkening into the voice of prejudice and prudence, he began sprinting towards safety. Ten miles out of Winchester, he met General Sheridan, who was loping along on old Renzi. The general reined his mount to halt, and the following conversation ensued. Sheridan. Good morning, Bert. Bert. Good morning, Phil. Sheridan. It's a nice morning, Bert. Bert. What's nice about it, Phil? Sheridan. You pair to be in a hurry, Bert. Bert. I am that, Phil. Sheridan said. Why are you running, Bert? Bert says, Because my Jiminy, I can't fly. Sheridan. Well, so long, Bert. I'll see you at Winchester. And Bert said, Not me, Phil. I'll see you at Snatchburg. He was mustered out of the Army shortly after Appomattox and was in Washington that night of Lincoln's assassination. Next day, he strolled by Ford's Theater. Returning to Snatchburg, he attended normal schools in West Virginia and for more than 40 years taught school in various rural communities, always holding a number one certificate. He was an excellent teacher, a gentleman in the true sense of the word. His strong forte was United States history, and we who were so fortunate as to suffer under his tutelage, we know what the war was all about. And he won it. Dave Phillips was a mighty man, and a mighty man was he. Always the star performer when the boys regrouped to relive the days from 61 to 65. Some of the yarns spun by lesser heroes sounded almost too implausible to be true, but not Dave's stories. Deliberate in manner and speech as he toyed with a watch chain across his chest, 
He seemed to search for the right word, and every word he uttered rang with authenticity. A fighter's fight, he had fired many balls from the front-line ranks. He had grappled with the Rebs hand-to-hand. He had fought on the mountaintops and in the valleys. He had gunned and bayoneted and slashed with saber and sword. He had been in every fracas worth chronicling. And he had licked the living hell out of the enemy, all by himself. Dave had another accomplishment which set him quite apart from the rank and file of veterans. He was the bass drummer in the French Creek Fife and Drummer Corps. And what a drummer he was, with arms crossed, each hand holding a drumstick. He coaxed melodies out of his instruments, such as John Philip Sousa, never heard thump, and the reverberations echoed and re-echoed in the farthest reaches of Calhoun County. Memorial Day was the day of days for the boys in blue. Some wearing faded blue uniforms, others identified only by their G.A.R. badges, they converged upon Snatchburg from all corners of the country. Long before noon, they gathered in little groups. Old comrade greeted old comrade, and as Charlie Smith phrased it, they reunioned themselves to death. At one o'clock in the parade formed in front of Linger's store, Wallace Phillips, proudly carrying the flag, headed the procession. Following him were the musicians and the warriors. A dozen, perhaps, marched with faltering step, but most, too weary and all fought out, were herded into buggies, and the line of march was up the old road to the Presbyterian Church on the hill. Playing a funeral dirge, the drummers and fifers went at a sectarious route through the cemetery, pausing at each flag-marked grave to dip colors and salute a fallen comrade-in-arms. At the cross-bearing, the inscription, To Our Unknown Dead, which was garlanded with flowers plucked from her garden and placed there by Electa Phillips Rex Road, they stood at attention while a brief prayer was intoned. Later, after an hour of handshaking and reminiscing, the the musicians regrouped in front of the church and gave a concert of martial music. Never again, not in this world, and most improbably in the world to come, will such beautiful music peel out against the West Virginia hills. Core, as I remember it, was made up of the one and only Dave, of course, bass drummer Marshall Warner, Parley Rexroad, Dick Phillips, and Carl Lemons, tenor drummers, and John and Homer Van Trump, and Wirt and Phil Phillips as fifers. I also recall that upon one or two occasions, Boyer's Morgan joined the fifers. Their favorite melody was reserved for the last. And when they gave out with the strains of the, the girl I left behind me, Jubal Early took to his heels, and old Jeff Davis whirled round and round in his grave. This merry breed of men, these born fighters, when my life was just beginning, could look beyond the Freeman Sexton farm and see their evening sun slowly sinking in the west. Expert marksmen, knowing no fear to hear them tell it.
shortly joining forces with Joshua and Gideon, would stand at Armageddon and battle for the Lord. Wallace Phillips and Marshall Warner were among the last to lay down their arms. Today, many side by side, they sleep the warrior's last long sleep, and there they lie and listen to eternity passing over. But somewhere in Valhalla, Bert Hamner and Phil Sheridan sit on a log and badger each other while Renzi, his horse, grazes nearby. Jim Young stumps up the golden streets with his boots, his arms filled with groceries for his inebo. Uncle Jimmy Roby's neurology has been miraculously cured, and he still speaks the God's truth. Day in, day out, Morg Morrison feasts on beans. No more will he go to bed on an empty belly. Theodore Chauvarant, his language purged of profanities, guides his team along celestial highways. And Obi Martin say, I still say I like to lick the whole dang rebel army all over again. The Phantom Corps, the Snatchburg Boys in Blue, who, with little assistance from their comrades, lick the britches off of Lee's forces are massing and passing in full review beneath the flag that beckoned them in 1861. Separated in age by more than a half century, these were my boyhood heroes. Their stories, woven of whole cloth truth, were more wonderful than those in storybooks. How many generals with whom they had shaken hands, how many ribs they had dispatched, how much suffering they endured will never be known. They were my friends, your friends, and I look upon them with the wonderment that only a little boy can feel when in the presence of men who have performed great and wonderful deeds. There are many stories about the Civil War in my hometown where I was born. It's part of my family's history and the community I grew up in. History plays a big part of who we are. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you get a chance, go to my website and leave me your comments. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, because the best day of my life is right here with you.